Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast episode contains references to suicide, murder and pedophilia. Listener discretion is advised. It's close to midnight on Saturday the 11th of April 1863 and in a grog shanty in country Victoria, middle-aged man Bob Scott knows... It won't be long before he meets his maker. He's dying in a shaking frenzy. Sick with drink, sicker without it. Bob's pretty young wife sits by his bed sometimes. She rubs his chest to soothe the pains in his heart, the heart that threatens to stop at any moment. Bob wants her there. Bob wants her gone. She goes. Voices float through the doorway from the kitchen. Talk of going for a doctor. Brandy. Bob needs brandy. He has to have it. It's been like this now for days and days and nights and nights. His wife comes back with another woman. Brandy. Give me brandy. The women aren't sure. But then his wife says yes. Bob gulps it down. It's soothing for a second as it burns its way to his stomach. But it's not enough. It's never enough. It's a bucket on an inferno. The women go, leaving Bob to the grip of the grog, the demons of the drink squeezing him ever tighter, wringing every last drop from his mind, his body and his soul. Bob rasps and retches, shouts and scolds, tosses and turns and ends up on his side. Someone's tucked him into place now 
and he faces the bark wall. Its contours shift in grey and black and orange in the flickering light of the candle on the bedside table behind him. Bob can't go on like this much longer. Delirium Tremens has him at death's door. What awaits on the other side of the threshold? Will it be the glow of heaven or the fires of hell? Bob doesn't know any more than any other man knows. But what Bob does know, what God knows, what the devil knows, is that he needs another bloody drink, just to ease the pain, just to carry him across, just to... Bob Scott is no more. Bob's there one second, and Bob's gone the next. And he never hears the bullet that blows his brains out. I'm Michael Adams, this is Forgotten Australia, and you're listening to Murder on Devil's River, Part 1. Parts 2 and 3 will go on general release very soon. The 11th of November is a date that feels like it's popped up more than its fair share of times in Australian history. It's held special significance for close to a century and a half thanks to an accumulation of important events that have taken place on the 11th of the 11th. Working backwards, the 11th of the 11th 1975 saw Prime Minister Gough Whitlam sacked by the Governor-General Sir John Kerr. 11-11-1918 brought news that the war to end all wars had finally come to an end. And of course, 11-11-1880 was the day that Ned Kelly was hanged in the Melbourne jail. Yet Ned's generation, and the generation or two before him, had already marked the 11th of the 11th as a day worthy of infamy. On that day, in 1863, 160 years ago this month, the final act in the tragedy of Bob Scott's life and death was to be played out. Not a great deal is known about the man in question. Robert Scott was born in 1818 in London and emigrated to the Port Phillip district around 1843. Less than a decade into white colonisation, Narn, which had been renamed Melbourne, was then a primitive township. It was a rough and violent place. The countryside even more so. Hundreds of thousands of acres were being forcibly settled for large farms and frontier violence was ongoing. Robert Scott, Bob as he was known, was one of the men who was employed as a shepherd and boundary rider. His boss was Alfred Chennery on the Delatite station near Mansfield in the northeast. On a Monday evening in 1850, the Herald newspaper put out an extraordinary edition. The entire front page was devoted to bold headlines, Glorious news, separation at last. This was what everyone was waiting for. Victoria was to be its own colony. There was rejoicing all over the city. The date was the 11th of November. Victoria became a separate colony the following year, but 1851 brought even more dramatic change with the discovery of gold. As far as we know, Bob resisted the temptation to go prospecting. He didn't become one of those successful diggers who splashed their cash on flash weddings in now-bustling Burke Street. In the decade he'd been down under, Bob hadn't even made a marriage. Fair enough, 
Single women were in short supply, and there were even fewer eligible ladies living out in the sticks who wanted to marry a shepherd. While Bob hadn't struck it lucky on the goldfields, his fortunes changed when he met Elizabeth Luckett. Betsy, as she was known, worked at Benalla as a domestic servant. Betsy was beautiful, and Bob wanted her for his wife. But Betsy was just 13 years old. Betsy's mother, Anne Baker, had been born in Surrey in 1814. She'd married bricklayer Thomas Luckett in 1836, so Anne had been 22. Their first daughter, Annie, was born in 1837. Next came Betsy, born in Twickenham on the 22nd of January 1840. Anne and Thomas had two more daughters. There was Sarah in 1842 and Louisa in 1844. But Thomas didn't see his four daughters grow up to adulthood. He died in 1848. In June 1850, Anne married a man named George Fitzwater. The UK census was taken nine months later. It's available via ancestry.com.au and it lists George Fitzwater as husband to Anne and stepfather to her four daughters. But this newly formed family wasn't to be under the same roof for much longer. Anne Baker, nee Luckett, nee Fitzwater made a radical choice. She and her daughters would move far from her second husband by moving to a new religious society on the far side of the world. This was the settlement of Canterbury in New Zealand. It was a Christian colony and the work of Edward Gibbon Wakefield. Before Wakefield became famous for such projects, he was infamous for a crime that's disturbingly fitting to this episode. See, in 1826, the then 30-year-old Wakefield, who lusted for wealth and who lusted for more, kidnapped a 15-year-old heiress and forced her to marry him. This scandal resulted in Wakefield being arrested, convicted and sentenced to three years in prison, with the unholy union he'd foisted on the young girl annulled by a special act of parliament. While Wakefield was in Newgate Prison, he changed his life's course by making intense studies of two of the pressing issues of the day. While behind bars, he witnessed a score or more of executions, and he wrote passionately about these experiences and how seeing men hanged had turned him against capital punishment in every conceivable way. His 1831 book, Facts Relating to the Punishment of Death in the Metropolis, was so far ahead of its time as to guarantee its obscurity today. Yet, two centuries later, we're still feeling the effects of Wakefield's other work, his study of colonisation. In 1829, while still in prison, he'd published the anonymous Sketch of a Proposal for Colonising Australasia, and this was hugely influential. With his advocacy for the so-called systematic colonisation of South Australia leading to this dream being realised from the early 1830s. Later, Wakefield turned his attention to the colonisation of New Zealand. In March 1848, Wakefield and a partner had established the Canterbury Association. Colonists would buy land from the association for £3 per acre, with these funds then used in part to assist migration of working-class people. 
The first fleet of four ships set sail in September 1850, with the 790 or so passengers dubbed the Canterbury Pilgrims. They arrived from mid-December, decided their settlement would be called Canterbury, and their town would be Christchurch. Ship after ship was to follow. The 16th was a new vessel, actually named Canterbury, and it carried 143 souls. Among those in the ranks of the assisted steerage passengers was Anne Luckett and her four young daughters. Anne was reportedly the matron aboard the ship, meaning she had responsibility for the welfare of the children and the single women. But this was a responsibility that she would abdicate with her own daughters. Anne and the girls didn't stay long in Canterbury. Why isn't known. Possibly Anne believed that a better life lay on the other side of the Tasman, with Victoria right then in the first flush of the gold rush. Even if you weren't out on the diggings, a rising tide lifts all boats and there'd be plenty of wealth to go around. Or so people believed. Tens of thousands of hopefuls from all over the world were pouring into Melbourne. Port Phillip Bay looked like a forest because it was so thick with a mass of ships. But many people found nothing but despair upon arrival. The exploding population had caused rampant inflation. New arrivals were greeted by those who'd come before them reduced to selling everything they owned on the wharves and in the streets. People paid premium prices for accommodation, which might mean sleeping under a kitchen table in a city boarding house or sharing a bunk in a room that was already packed to the rafters. Thousands more lived in a shabby tent city on the other side of the Yarra River, where outbreaks of disease were common and deaths from starvation not unknown. Anne Luckett, married but without her husband, had four mouths to feed. Oldest daughter Annie was about 15. Betsy was 12. Sarah was around 10 and Louisa was 8. If Anne couldn't feed them, then someone else would have to. Annie was the first to go. She was married to a Scottish man named Malcolm Littlejohn at St Peter's Church in Easton Hill in Melbourne in December 1852. Annie had only recently turned 15. Her new husband was 25. By the standards of the day, Annie was on the young side, but not so young it'd be cause for too much comment. That wasn't the case when it came to 13-year-old Betsy. In 1853, Betsy was working as a domestic servant up at Benalla. There, she came into Bob Scott's orbit. He was 35. Bob wanted Betsy as his wife. She had no choice. Her mother forced her to marry Bob. While not a kidnapping, it wasn't far off. But Betsy was no blue-blood heiress. She was a lowly servant girl. Her situation wasn't going to scandalise anyone. There'd be no arrest and no special act of parliament to annul the marriage, especially not when they had her mother's blessing. Newspapers of the period would later say Betsy was just or only 13, and this shows that she was considered very young to be married. Yet Betsy and Bob became man and wife on a station in Benalla on the 18th of December 1853. She turned 14 the following month.
Over the next five years, living in huts on sheep stations, Betsy would bear Bob five babies. Only two would survive infancy. John, born in 1856, and Thomas, who was born in 1859. Down in Melbourne, Betsy's sister Annie had a similar experience. She'd bear her husband four children. Only one would survive infancy. Annie's husband Malcolm was a drunkard who deserted her. When he returned to the home, he beat her and kicked her out of the house. In December 1858, he was before the court for this behaviour, and Malcolm promised that he'd change his ways. He didn't, and his drinking and disorderly conduct would see him in trouble several more times before he eventually deserted Annie for good. Meanwhile, Annie and Betsy's youngest sister, Louisa, was married off to a 27-year-old Englishman named Samuel Marks in Melbourne in 1858. Louisa was 14, and she'd soon be having her own brood of babies, many also doomed to live short lives. Their mother, Anne, who'd yet to marry off the other sister, Sarah, died in 1859. Sarah, aged 18, died the following year. All of which is to say that by 1860, at the age of 20, Betsy Scott had already endured many rough years, and she didn't have support from her two surviving sisters, who were down in Melbourne and going through their own struggles. By 1860, Bob had given up on chasing sheep for squatters to go into business for himself with a grog shanty. He set up shop midway along the 20-something miles of Hilly Road between Mansfield and Jamison. The map of these parts was spattered with fairly sinister place names, among them Murderer's Flat and Dead Man's Gully. Devil's River was another, and this was the spot Bob had chosen for their new life. Devil's River was so named because in 1839, colonisers had scouted this waterway and come across the Yoangillum traditional owners. One account said the Aboriginal inhabitants had been frightened by men on horses and had run away. Another reckoned they'd been holding a great corroboree when this first contact was made. In any case, the colonisers thought they were Black Devils, and so they named the land they stole Devil's River. The land around Devil's River was heavenly for farmers when the rains were good, their crops of grain and hay commanding high prices. As for Devil's River itself, it was a beautiful clear stream that ran all year round. Bob and Betsy's bark hut and tents backed onto the river. They had no near neighbours and they were surrounded by thick bush. While grog was a large part of their business, Bob and Betsy offered meals that were made by their cook in their kitchen and they also had a few basic rooms they could rent out. They had a fairly steady stream of visitors because the Bevan Company's coaches changed horses there These animals kept in a stable not far from the grog shanty. Random road travellers would also come to Devil's River on foot, on horseback and in drays and private coaches. Alcoholism was then considered at epidemic levels in Victoria and drink-induced delirium was common. Dealing with drunkards would have been part and parcel of operating the grog shanty and oftentimes it just can't have been pleasant for Betsy but she seemed to do well. A visitor to Devil's River would, nearly 40 years later, write a pen portrait that gives us an idea of how the couple looked and how they acted. 
Betsy, he wrote, was, quote, of stout build, good-looking, and of pleasing manners and address, and to appearances, a first-class housekeeper. In other words, Betsy was everything a man could want in a wife and mother to his children, not to mention a business partner. This same writer said that Bob Scott was, quote, a man of small stature, of light, sandy complexion, good-natured and lively, but was given to occasional outbursts of intemperance. In other words, Bob was an alright sort of bloke, except when he was being a rowdy boozer. Like her sister Annie, Betsy had been married off to an alcoholic. By autumn of 1863, Bob, who was now 44 or 45, was worse for wear due to his heavy drinking. It had made him physically infirm, and it did him no favours mentally and emotionally. By contrast, Betsy, who was half his age, had grown into a beautiful woman who still sparkled with life despite the hardships she endured. Bob was very jealous of her, so much so that she didn't feel she could go far from the shanty. To be out of Bob's sight was to risk his wrath. Yet, while he was a difficult husband, she was a dutiful wife who'd do her best to respect him, raise their boys, run their business, and put up with his benders, his hangovers, and the horrors of his delirium tremens whenever he tried to give up the grog or was forced to because it had made him so sick. If there was a consolation, it was this. Betsy probably wouldn't have to endure her lot for too much longer. Bob was so booze-addled that his broken body was sure to soon give up the ghost. Even he knew this. At this time, autumn of 1863, Betsy had other consolations in the form of male company at Devil's River. They were David Gedge and Julian Cross. David Gedge was just 19 years old. He'd been born in 1844 in London. Passengerlists at Ancestry.com.au tell us that David and his family arrived in Melbourne in December 1852 aboard the ship Persian. So this was around the same time that Betsy and her mother and sisters had arrived in the colony. David was then eight years old. The Gedges were a respectable family and they settled in the gold town of Ballarat. Ten years later, David got work in the Mansfield district with several farmers. These employers would unanimously speak highly of the innocent-looking lad's good and trustworthy character. David next got work as a groom at the Bevan Coach Company's stables at Devil's River. He took a room in the grog shanty and paid his rent to Bob and Betsy. That visitor to the district, who'd 40 years later write his memoirs, would recall, quote, He was rather boyish in appearance. He was good-looking, active, and of industrious habit, and a fair singer. I recall him as the first I ever heard singing in company in a house without musical accompaniment. The song was Nora McShane, and it was really well rendered. Nora McShane was an aching song, about lamenting being so far from the girl of the title, who was back in an old island. One lyric goes, But I'm sadly alone, not a creature to mind me. In truth, I'm as wretched as wretched can be. The other man under the grog shanty roof, Julian Cross, had been hired recently by Bob to be their cook. Reports varied as to his age, but it seemed he was in his mid-thirties. 
What didn't vary was that every official report and newspaper article would describe Julian Cross as a coloured man. By his own account, Julian had been born on an island in the Chinese seas. Likely, it was Macau. His father was Portuguese and his mother Chinese. Julian spoke Cantonese and Portuguese fluently, and he communicated in what was described as broken English, though it was also said to be perfectly understandable. Julian Cross had sailed the seas, working on French, American and British merchant vessels before arriving in Victoria around October of 1862. Not long after this, he got a job as a cook with people near Mansfield. They would later say they considered him, quote, a very treacherous and vindictive man and claimed that he usually carried a knife. One time, he supposedly drew this blade and threatened another worker. For this, Julian's boss had horsewhipped him. That this master would not only reach for such a weapon to dish out summary punishment, but that he'd freely admit doing so to the police without fear of recrimination gives us an idea of racial attitudes at this time. After being horsewhipped, Julian had gotten another cook job at one of Jamison's hotels. Then he'd moved on to work in the kitchen at Bob and Betsy's grog shanty. That visitor, who'd later write his memoirs, had also met Julian Cross. Rather than remember him as a vindictive character, he would write he was, quote, a lanky fellow, though not of disagreeable appearance or manner. By the 7th of April, 1863, Bob Scott had been sick from the drink for about a fortnight. Betsy was there for him day and night her efforts with him, their boys and their business accumulating into exhaustion. Two visitors to the grog shanty would bear witness to this. They were Elias and Ellen Ellis, a married farming couple from Bald Hills, four miles out of Violet Town. Mr and Mrs Ellis were making the journey to Jamison in their dray and stopped in at Devil's River. They visited with Bob, who was bedridden, and who said he thought he was dying. The Ellises saw that Betsy was doing everything she could for her husband. But they also saw something else. Mr and Mrs Ellis would both say that at five or six o'clock the next morning, they saw Betsy and David Gedge come out of the hut and go into the stables together for about an hour. What were they doing in there? The implication was obvious. Mr Ellis said to Mrs Ellis, That doesn't look well, does it? Yet it was also possible, as the Ellises would later admit, that Betsy and David had been doing nothing more in there than attending to the horses. After all, the coach was due at eight that morning. Mr and Mrs Ellis continued on their way that day, but their return journey saw them back at Devil's River three days later, arriving around four o'clock on Saturday afternoon, the 11th of April. They camped with their dray about 30 yards from the grog shanty. Mr Ellis went in to see how Bob was doing. He wasn't any better, he was worse. Mr Ellis and Julian Cross went roo shooting that late afternoon. And while they were hunting, Mr Ellis said it was a shame that Bob was in such a bad way. Julian agreed, saying that the master would probably die soon. While the men were out, Mrs Ellis visited with Betsy. Betsy was certainly glad for the company. 
She was exhausted and she hoped that Mrs. Ellis could stay a while and help her nurse her husband. Maybe not only tonight, but tomorrow night too. Mrs. Ellis said she'd do what she could. They sat with Bob. Betsy rubbed Bob's chest to help soothe the heart pains he was suffering. When he complained that his feet were cold, Mrs. Ellis rubbed them for him. Mr. Ellis and Julian Cross returned just before sunset. They'd arranged to go back out roo shooting the next morning. Mrs. Ellis went out to the dray and had tea with her husband. Then she went back inside to Betsy. Bob was calling out for brandy. Mrs. Ellis said he mustn't have any. But Betsy relented. She asked Mrs. Ellis to give her husband a nobbler. Mrs. Ellis did so. Mrs. Ellis said to Betsy she should go and see a doctor about Bob. If a medical man said that it was all right for her husband to have brandy, then she could give him more without worrying. And if something bad should happen, well, Betsy wouldn't be blamed. Betsy replied there was no doctor nearby. Mrs. Ellis said there was one at Big River. Betsy didn't reply to this suggestion. Mrs. Ellis pressed. She said Betsy should go to see Mr. Chenery, who, in addition to being Bob's old boss, served as a local magistrate. Mr. Chenery, she said, could order Bob to go into hospital. Betsy confided to Mrs. Ellis that she couldn't do any of those things. Bob, she said, was so jealous of her that she was afraid to leave the shanty at all. Betsy said she would never have married Bob if it hadn't been for her mother. Yet, despite this unpleasant state of affairs, Mrs. Ellis noted that Betsy would say nothing disrespectful about Bob. When Mrs. Ellis left, she reckoned it was around 9 or 10. At this time, she said, Betsy and David were sitting near the fire in the kitchen, where they were able to keep an eye on Bob through the door to the bedroom. Back at the dray, Mrs. Ellis would tell Mr. Ellis that it had been Betsy who'd given Bob the brandy, and that it had been a tumbler, not a nobbler. This might have been because she didn't want to take the blame if anything should happen to Bob. Hearing this, Mr. Ellis said Betsy needed to be careful. Giving booze to Bob could kill him. The Ellises bedded down for the night in the dray. Before Mrs. Ellis went to sleep, she heard the sounds of Bob retching coming from the shanty. But Mr. Ellis didn't go to sleep, or that's what he said. So he was awake when a single gunshot shattered the silence. Mr. Ellis said he couldn't tell if it was a rifle or a pistol, but it had been very loud and not very far away. Mr. Ellis would give the time in one account as having been between 11 and 12, and in another between 12 and 1. What he was adamant about, though, was that just seconds later, he heard hurried footsteps. Someone was running towards the dray. It was David Gedge. He called up. Ellis, are you asleep? No. For God's sake, get up, David said. Bob has shot himself. Mrs. Ellis was awake now, too, and she heard David say it also. Bob has shot himself. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. With David Gedge at his dray saying Bob Scott had shot himself, Elias Ellis got up so fast that he didn't even stop to put on his trousers. He just grabbed the pants and stuck them under his arm. Mr Ellis raced into the hut. He saw Betsy leaning against a doorpost in the kitchen. Mr Ellis didn't say anything to her as he went into the bedroom. The air in there was thick with smoke, but it wasn't too hazy to see that Bob Scott was dead. No doubt about it. Taking up the candle, Mr. Ellis had a closer look. Bob had died facing the hut's bark wall. Blood was pouring from a wound an inch below and behind his left ear. There was some burned calico wadding around the edges of the wound. He lay on his right side beneath bedclothes that were tucked under his back. His right arm was mostly under his body, but the right hand was outside of the blankets. His left arm rested against his left side beneath the bedclothes. On top of the blankets, halfway down the bed, between the body and the hut wall, not far from his right hand, there lay a small double-barreled pistol. This pistol was pointing away from Bob's head. Mr Ellis didn't need to be a detective to know what he was looking at. Someone had murdered Bob Scott in cold blood, and whoever had done it would go to the gallows. By now, Mrs Ellis had come from the dray into the kitchen, and she stood with Betsy and David. Mrs Ellis said to Betsy of her husband's suicide, I'm very sorry for you. It is a bad job. Betsy replied, It is, but it can't be helped. Mr Ellis walked out into the kitchen. He finally had time to put on his pants. Then he said of the bloody scene back over his shoulder in the smoky bedroom, quote, This here is a bad job. There will be a coroner's inquest over this job, and something worse will follow that. It's impossible for the man to have shot himself from the position in which he was lying. The man must have been shot. On hearing this, Mr Ellis would say, David Gedge disappeared into the bedroom for a few seconds. But before he did this, David had whispered something to Betsy. Anyway, David went back into the bedroom briefly a second time, and this time Mr Ellis would say he heard him moving something in there. Mr Ellis told Betsy and David that they needed to alert the local police or the magistrate. Betsy asked, Ellis, have you ever been on an inquest before? Mr Ellis said yes, he had. Several, in fact. Newspapers at Trove show that Mr Ellis had sat on a number of juries as far back as 1850, 
and that he'd also been the victim of a few crimes in Melbourne. Perhaps it was his experiences with the police and with the courts that made him see himself as a bit of a sleuth. He certainly asked a lot of questions, starting with, Where were you when the man shot himself? We were here, in the kitchen, taking our tea. This reply, Mr Ellis would initially claim, had come from both Betsy and David simultaneously, as though they were speaking in one voice. Given how improbable this was, he'd later amend that, saying he wasn't sure if Betsy had replied. But in Mr Ellis's initial statement to the police, he had Betsy and David answering other questions as a duet as well. What did the man shoot himself with, Mr Ellis had asked. Here, they again responded in unison to say, with the pistol. What pistol, Mr Ellis asked. Again, they said as one, the pistol that lays on the bed. Whereabouts was this pistol, Mr Ellis wanted to know. To this he said, it was Betsy who replied, on the shelf. What shelf? The shelf in the room. Was the pistol loaded? Yes. With what? Betsy replied, I don't know. Mr. Ellis pressed, How long has the pistol been on the shelf? Several days, Betsy said. Even though Mr. Ellis was to say he'd already concluded this hadn't been suicide, he still had this to say to Betsy, quote, What a stupid woman you must have been not to have removed the pistol knowing the state your husband was in. Betsy replied, I didn't know. Mr. Ellis asked again, Where were you when the pistol went off? Again, Betsy and David said they were in the kitchen having their tea. But Mr. Ellis saw just one cup on the table. His suspicions deepened. Where is Julian Cross? he asked. David replied, In bed. Mr. Ellis said, Go and call him up. David went from the kitchen and called Julian's name three times. Julian came inside. Mr. Ellis said to them that someone had to go for the authorities. It was agreed that Julian would catch a horse out in the paddock and he'd ride for the police. Before he left, Julian asked Betsy, Have you any money? Why? she asked. Julian replied, Because I shall be cold when I get there and want a nobbler. Betsy gave him some coins for brandy when he arrived, and off Julian went. But Julian was back 15 minutes later. He said it was too dark outside and he couldn't catch a horse. Now, Mr Ellis drew a line under his detective work, at least for the night, saying, Well, I suppose it must bide until the morning. To Mrs Ellis he said, We can do no more. We'll go to bed. Mrs Ellis went to the dray, escorted through the darkness by Julian. When Julian returned, he'd brought back Mr Ellis's boots. Mr Ellis put them on and prepared to leave the hut. Before he went, he said, Betsy had gone to lay down in a room, while David bedded down on a bag of chaff in the kitchen. Not surprisingly, Mr Ellis did not get off to sleep. He said that he heard voices coming from the hut. At about four or five in the morning, David Gedge came back to the dray. He whispered, Ellis, are you asleep? No. Jump up. I have a secret to tell you. Mr Ellis was up and he was all ears. David said, Ellis, I had no opportunity to tell you before, last night, but it was the blackfellow who shot Bob. I am going to the police. 
Despite Mr. Ellis's suspicions, it was still a shock to hear out loud what had happened. Julian Cross, who had escorted his wife to the dray, was a murderer. Is it possible? Mr. Ellis asked. David Gedge told him, yes, it was true, but he couldn't explain everything now. Mr. Ellis said that David was right. He had to go and get the police so they could come and arrest Julian. David replied, yes, keep it a secret from the women until I return and keep an eye on him. Mr. Ellis told him to go, but to not stay away longer than was necessary. David rode for Mansfield Police, bearing the terrible news. Bob Scott, well-known proprietor of the grog shanty at Devil's River, had been murdered in his sleep, shot in the head in cold blood by the coloured man Julian Cross. But what young David Gedge was about to tell the police was a pack of lies. Lies packed around a kernel of truth. When these lies began to unravel, they'd reveal one of Victoria's most shocking crimes. One that would make history and leave unanswered questions 160 years later. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Murder at Devil's River, Part 1. Bob Scott is shot. Part 2, I'm innocent, but I know I'll hang. And Part 3, Australia's first femme fatale, will go on release very soon. But you can hear them right now if you're an Apple or Patreon supporter. Supporting Forgotten Australia costs as much as a cup of coffee a month, and it helps me cover the cost of research materials, from second-hand books and digital archive items, to trips to state libraries and to old crime scenes basically leaving no stone unturned to shed light on stories and make them as colourful and correct as possible. As a thank you, supporters get a show shout-out, early ad-free access to episodes and exclusive bonus shows. So, a big, big thank you to Carl, Ori and Arson and to Felicity Reynolds, who've both become Patreon supporters recently. If you'd like to support the show, check out Patreon at patreon.com forward slash forgottenaustralia or Apple at apple.co forward slash Forgotten Australia. And those links are also in your show notes. This month marks the fifth anniversary of Forgotten Australia, which, in a coincidence, launched on the 11th of the 11th, 2018. Unlike a lot of other podcasts where, at the end of the show, the host thanks the producers, executive producers, writers, researchers, fact-checkers, sound editors, and audio engineers... Everything you've heard since November 2018 has been, for better or worse, my work. So, thanks go to you for making it possible for me to make this show. Forgotten Australia wouldn't be possible without everyone who's listened, left a rating or review, given a thumbs up or made a comment on a Facebook post, supported via Patreon or Apple, or bought a copy of my books The Murder Squad, Hanging Ned Kelly and Australia's Sweetheart. I'm also immensely grateful to Ancestry, whose sponsorship means I can devote just about every waking moment to uncovering and sharing these Australian stories. Stories that I hope make us see our history in new ways and even give us a better understanding of ourselves. So, here's to the next five years and thank you again. Just before I sign off, with the end of the year bearing down, I'll push the next book club episode into the new year. That's going to be a conversation with David Hunt, author of the wonderful Gert Trilogy, which over the past decade has brought hilarity to Australian history. 
I have received a couple of questions from listeners, but you've got plenty more time if you'd like to submit a question for David that he can answer in the show. You can send them as an email to ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com or you can very easily record a short audio message using the free online service SpeakPipe by going to speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. Those links are also in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.